time for another episode of Rhinoceros. I'm your host, Eric Skruwala. So, we are extraordinarily because he spent almost an entire career working on and understanding both the government side of healthcare and the private sector side as well. The Council on Foreign Relations did a study of a number of uh, countries and their response to the coronavirus. And what the Council of Foreign Relations found in their study was that regardless of how your healthcare system is structured, if there was a large-scale public response, an immediate and massive public response, those countries tended to have better outcomes regardless of their healthcare system. So, of course, you know, we have had a particularly terrible result um, from the coronavirus. The way we address these systems is to be prepared from a public health perspective and be quick and decisive in how we respond to it. And that obviously failed here. In some respects, I think this crisis that we've dealt with, this public health crisis, has been an object lesson in the, in the, you know, in the in the dispute between, you know, the small government conservative and the so-called big government progressive or liberal, because the small government conservative says that there is very little role for a federal government in our day-to-day lives, and the progressive you know, quote unquote, big government person would say, no, that the federal government has a role and a key role in certain areas. And this would certainly seem to be one of those times. The lack of a centralized response at the federal level led to utter chaos uh, in individual states and, and led in, you know, in, in large measure to some of the, the just the really terrible results uh, that we all experienced. And it's not something that we're really talking about, right? We're, we're not really talking about what this means from a philosophical perspective about the role of government in our daily lives. And can we build a government that has no such role? Can you leave something like this to the states? I think we've just learned that you can. Please welcome to the show today, John Gorman, CEO of Nightingale Partners. John, how you doing, buddy? Never been better, Eric. Joe, pleasure to be here. Great to see you guys again. Welcome, yes, John. Deep from, deep from his basement, sorry, no, not basement, I'm sorry, garage lair, the one, the only Joe Luciano. Joe, my man. <laughs> Good to join you all. So I thought, um, so we're going to talk a lot about healthcare because that's John's expertise. I've been doing that for, 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 for years. Um, <laughs> But before we do that, John, I want to talk a little bit about um, what happened in D.C. about a month ago. 
Um, so we all know that after the, the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, we saw protest marches all over the country. Yep. Um, and probably, the, for me at least, one of the more frightening displays was in D.C., which has been your hometown, I yep. think, pretty much since you graduated college. Yep. So, um, so we saw we saw National Guard out front of the Lincoln Memorial. We saw getting buzzed uh, by Army helicopters. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and and law. I don't know what to call them: law enforcement, SWAT team, vigilantes, those paramilitary are people. Prison, those are with, Bureau of Prisons riot control uh, cops. So, so what does that? I mean, what does that feel like? to you as a as a dc resident i mean you know dc is not immune to protest dc is the place where no. people come to register yeah. complaints but have you ever so seen anything seen like this like that never with like rubber bullets and these beanbag things they were shooting at us and uh the smoke grenades and the tear gas were unbelievable and and it was just the 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 violence of it i mean um it wasn't like they were just sort of firmly trying to move us to the next block this was like a break the back of this crowd and send them scurrying and um it was brute for man it was scary um we've never seen a protest broken like that in the 30 years i've lived here and man you know to then to see Barr and Trump come marching through there so he can do his little his little Bible photo op stunt. Um, dude, I got to tell you, as a Jew, you could have heard my ass pucker up, man, because it was feeling like 1938 in that moment. And uh, I was just waiting for the, you know, for the night of broken glass and burning books to start. And um, it's good to see that the public really came out so resoundingly against those kind of those kind of uh dictator tactics because it was totally uncalled for and absolutely illegal yeah the only thing i could think you know uh sorry joe yeah. interrupt, but the only thing i could think of that even came close to that was uh you, you know was the students that were shot at, at kent state that's the only thing that yeah. didn't happen is is that somebody got killed well, and, and it was apparently very close to having escalated to something much worse. You know, even right up here in my neighborhood in Northwest D.C., up near the zoo, um, we had a lot of protest act action, and there was there was a lot of vandalism and destruction. But everybody that we talked to, who were at those protests, and we were at a few of them, they were all white infiltrators who yeah. definitely were for not around here. And they were like, they had basically snaked their way into the crowds and they were making trouble. They were, they were pushing people. They were uh, getting people to, to do things that they were not necessarily inclined to do. And then there was all the vandalism. There were uh, windows broken all over our neighborhood and stuff. And it was, uh, it was definitely, you saw it all right around here. Crazy. Mm. Hey, John. So, so in, in emails I've gotten over the past couple of weeks, some progressive organizations natural nationally are, talking about statehood for dc is, yeah. there, is there a correlation between the amount of control and who directs breaking up a crowd because because dc is a different kind of entity because when i i was trying to do a diagnostic of who made that kind of violence happen was that you know was like, bill Barr and trump yeah trump said get him out of there and Barr said okay and these are all my bureau of prisons guys so they'll oh. do it. 
Okay. And then it was stick to then it was stick time with the Black Lives Matter kids. And yeah. It was one of the ugliest and scariest episodes I've seen in living here. Now, um remind me your Yeah, so statehood. Tell me about your sense of that. Well, I mean, look, we have seven hundred seven thousand souls that live here. Um uh, we're certainly a plurality black city and you know, I think a lot of members of Congress just view this as like view Capitol Hill as like an outpost among the uh, among the Zulus or something around here. But they have zero interest in talking about statehood. One, because there's still the taint of Marion Barry and, you know, big uh, corrupt black polit- machine politics in this town. So they love to, to wave that flag anytime that they can, even though we've had incredible leadership in the city since. Um, you know, it's because there are so many black and brown people here and because this city is an island of blue. I mean, it, you know, 94 percent of D.C. residents are Democrats. Mm-hmm. So the last thing Republicans want to do is like give two Senate seats to a bunch of left wing blacks and crazy Latinos and a, and a bunch of civil service retirees who are out here waving the flag, same flag they waved at Woodstock. That's how they do our city. Yeah, might even be a couple of members of the House too. Yeah, uh, several. Uh, yeah, and you know, right? so this there more people live in D.C. than live in Montana. Well, exactly. That's the point. <laughs> and when you listen to these Republican senators talk about it, you can literally hear the white supremacism in the voice. You know, it's like they talk about them or those people, or you know, they haven't run the city effectively, or all the corruption of DC and the swamp and it's legendary and it's just all racist bullshit to deny us our constitutional rights to vote and you know for true representation in Congress. Mm. Guys, man, it's like they think this city is their own little plantation. So that whole idea of it being an outpost, if you have a mentality that it's an outpost, you can treat the residents any way you want. Joe, I think about this often. We literally built this city for the singular purpose of housing a capital, federal government, right? On a swamp. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine how different our government would be had it been based in my birthplace of Detroit, Michigan? Mm. Can you imagine how different our government would have been if our capital was Memphis, Tennessee, you know, with all of its poverty and all of its scars, and it's all right there in front of you. And um, I think it would have been a very different country. Boy, that's that's very interesting. Uh, Elaborate on that a little more. What is there about you build your capital in a certain place on a swamp, you clear it out, you kind of put a little bow on top of it and call call it the nation's capital. Is it insulated from a certain reality that... Oh, utterly. Yeah. I mean, of course, we all realize we live in a in a huge liberal bubble here in D.C. And there are joys of that. Um, But, you know, it is it's definitely a bubble. You know, I spent the last 25 years doing 200,000 miles a year on the road. And I've seen a lot of America. And this is not it at all. But I love living here. I mean, you know, it's um, it's the Paris of America when we don't have these uh, these idiot maggots running the government. Do you think some of the same issues that that have held back D.C. statehood apply to Puerto Rico as well? Of course they do. 
Of course they do. They use all the same arguments. All they want to do is scream about Puerto Rican corruption and about how they're completely um, incapable of managing themselves. They don't deserve statehood. And they all love to talk about behind closed doors about those lazy Puerto Ricans. I mean, I've been doing business in Puerto Rico for 25 years. And yes, it is still rampant with corruption. But that is not the justification to deny three and a half million people their legitimate voting rights because they're brown and because most of these crackers in Congress view them as being lazy and a manana culture that's incapable of handling itself. I mean, of course, yeah, yeah. Lazy, man. Yeah, and both of those, you know, both, both Puerto Rico, D.C. contribute so much more to the federal government and to our <clears throat> to our treasury than yep. than a than a bunch of states out there. Yep. Absolutely. But, but I think you're right on. You know, that's that's some solid blue seats for a long time to come. And, and that's, of course, why they they fight it so hard. Yeah. Awesome. So, John, sit sit back for a second and, and think of this. You you in D.C., when you know, one reads your bio, you were inside. Now you're outside in terms of your perspective. So uh, let, let's let's do a little role play here. You get okay. a call from the Trump White House. They say, hey, John, you seem to know the workings of the government. You seem to know health care. Uh, you're in D.C. You kind of get the joke about how things move and operate. We're going to name you the national COVID-19 response czar. OK, what, what are the first two or three things you're doing? After you say yes, of course. <laughs> Because we all hope you say yes. No, after I tell them, go fuck themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but your nation needs you, John. Your nation needs you. Yeah, no, I, I don't work for fascists <laughs> who have absolutely zero interest, as has been demonstrated by the wildfire of this virus killing Americans by the thousands, that mm -hmm. they are no more interested in dealing with this than window dressing on Fifth Avenue. All right, I mean, so let's go in a time machine. Barack gives you a call, right? Several years ago, right? And yep. he says, John, I, I'm, I'm tabbing you. You're the guy leading the charge here. What are the first couple of things you want to, at your press conference, tell America? In this moment right now? Yep. I mean, basically the stuff that Fauci's been trying to say, but ha has actually not been forceful enough to get it through the thick heads of red state America. You know, one is... You know, wear a fucking mask. Jesus Christ. I mean, generations before us sacrificed hundreds of thousands of their sons and daughters for a war effort. And you snowflakes can't even wear a goddamn mask when you're going into a store. Not just, you know, to protect yourself, but to protect your grandmother and your children and the people of the community around you. Mm. I mean, seriously, I'd mandate that. And uh, there'd be no, there would have been no questions about it from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Listen, I mean, I'm a, I'm a secular, elite, science-loving liberal, and I'm proud to say it. And you know, I just think these guys, whoever is doing messaging on this thing, needs to be a hell of a lot more blunt with the American public if they want to see behavior change. Right mm -hmm. now, they're looking at this, this orange clown who won't wear a mask so he doesn't mess up his makeup. And they're thinking it's like some manly thing because he's not wearing a mask. I mean, then why don't we just print like a half a billion 
mask, black mask with the Punisher logo on it and get these fucking morons to wear these things. Ooh, now it's big and tough and, you know, maybe then they'll wear it. I mean, it's on all their goddamn pickup trucks. Of a and, million veins running around. I mean, really, I, I really think we give the American public at large a hell of a lot more credit than they're due in terms of listening to basic public health and public service messaging. And so, yeah, masks are mandatory. Boom. Then, you know, look, I get that there has to be reopening, but you can't reopen an economy until the people who spend their money in an economy are comfortable enough coming out of their homes to spend their money. You know, that's why, you know, all these places in blue states reopen. Nobody shows up because nobody's ready to come out yet. But right. in the red states, they go and flood the bars. And now look at what's happened. One in three people in Arizona today are testing positive for COVID. I mean, Louisiana, all these places burned because they just didn't want to listen to basic public health advice. And because it, the message was completely bungled from the beginning. And then at the end of the day, Trump just got bored and gave up. He just didn't want to talk about it anymore. And now we're looking at 100,000 people a day within the next 10 days. All right. So you're in charge. You just said that the yep. press kind of pulls its jaws off the ground, you know, like, wow, here's a forceful guy. What's the second thing you're doing? Then you got to really start thinking about how do you actually begin to reopen the economy with those at greatest risk in front of mind that, I mean, and this even assumes Joe that you could effectuate policy in this goddamn administration. I mean, they ain't going to do shit. I suggest anyway. So, <laughs> you know, we're just sitting here jawboning, but okay. We're Let's, in fantasy land, John. We're in fantasy land. Listen, you know, one, we need an army of contact tracers. Two, we need everybody in America to download a contact tracing app on their phone so we can start to keep keeping tabs on where this thing is going, who got it, who's about to get it, and so that we can figure out how to lock it down when uh, these inevitable uh, outbreaks occur. Um, you got to get everybody who's at high risk, which would be obviously the elderly, um, people of color, uh, over certain age that have certain chronic conditions. I mean, you're certainly seeing much, much higher disproportionate mortality rates among people with uh, chronic disease, with obesity, with diabetes, with, uh, with cardiovascular and with respiratory illnesses like emphysema and COPD. Those folks, this is a death sentence for. Mm. And so the priority has to be on isolating and keeping that population safe while the rest of us show some discipline, we go through another extended lockdown so that we can let the healthcare system catch up with the wildfire that's already been unleashed on the country. And then as we start getting back down below acceptable levels of R1.0, you know, then you can start letting folks who are relatively at low risk out. You can reopen critical infrastructure like we've seen. You can do grocery stores and people can go grocery shopping if you're wearing a goddamn mask. And if you're using an antiviral wipe to like clean your, your basket down as you go through, as long as you're wearing a mask, that solves literally nine tenths of this problem. 
and that's it. Then you just ban indoor uh, dining. Uh, I don't know what the hell people are doing in these crowded bars. I mean, I get it, but it's just stupid. Is a cocktail with your friends, like, worth dying for? Gyms? What the hell are people doing in gyms? My -hmm. (laughs) mother-in-law is 80 years old in Sarasota, Florida, African-American, couple of chronic diseases, really miss going to the gym. She's been going to the gym for two fucking weeks, Joe. Oh, no. When I FaceTimed with her the other day, I was like, Mom, what the hell are you thinking? You ready to die for a workout? And she said, I guess you're right now that you put it like that. In the meantime, my father-in-law standing behind her going like, yeah, thanks for saying it that way, John, because I never would. That's the kind of bludgeon most Americans need to get hit over the head with to do something different. But they're not getting that information. Of course not. Not from these clowns. They've given up, Erich. They've absolutely given up and moved on. Now they're trying to deflect from Russian bounties. Yeah. I um so take Joe's question now and back up. So it, it's not, you know, July 2nd. It's not leading into a holiday weekend, but it's January. Yeah. And we're just starting to see, you know, the the virus start to start to spread. We're starting to learn about it. Probably we're talking December to be honest. We're really being honest. But let's just say January. Okay? Even earlier than that. So so it's January and and We've got to think this just, is coming. Just follow the playbook. What are we doing from, in January? What are we doing in January? What are oh, we yeah. doing when we find out, hey, there's this thing coming, but we got to get ready for it? Just follow the playbook of Prime Minister Hearn of New Zealand. And let's just let women run it. Because the only countries that got this shit right were led by women. Yeah. Look at Just look at New Zealand. It, they're done. It's over. It's gone yeah. there. Because they no did it cases right. in three walls. We don't like to inconvenience anyone around here. And all these guys are talking about their liberties being infringed. Go fuck yourself. Wear a goddamn mask and don't kill my grandmother. Hey, so, John, you, you know, you raised a point before. You, you've done a lot of traveling across the country. Yeah. And you America. What's happened? Like, what's happened to the the will, the strength, the psyche of the country? It's, um, it's, it's all, you know, it's a, it's a death cult among the really hardened, uh, maggots, Joe. I mean, really, they'll just, they'll follow anything this guy says, because he's made racism guilt-free for them. Mm. Um, the rest of them, you know, it's, uh. I I just I have been absolutely flabbergasted and saddened and enraged by how quickly these folks folded and all I can trace it back to is the corrosive effect of Fox News and white victim culture and it's an infection that's almost worse than COVID because I mean, they did more to weaponize our grandparents against progress and equal rights and, and justice than, than anything. Now it's just like a bunch of cranks telling the entire rest of the country to get off their lawn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you're black, 
I'm going to come out my front door with the AR-15 like that pink-shirted douchebag did the other day. Yeah. Hmm. So let's let's uh, wind down your imaginary role for a moment, hmm. thinking that you would probably last a couple of days and then you'd get <laughs> fired. But let's say I would get assassinated. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but let's say. The the uh, Joint Chief of Staff comes to you the, the next day, and they said, the military is yours, my friend. Tell us what you want us to do. The military? Yeah. Yeah. How do you use the military during this national emergency? Well, shit. I mean, you know, it's swords into plowshares when you're in the middle of a, a pandemic. I mean, we basically should have mobilized every uh, military field hospital. Um, <clears throat> months ago mm. where we knew this was going to explode like yeah. we knew louisiana was going to was going to explode after mardi gras yeah right you know we knew the bible belt was going to explode after easter you know and i would have ensured that we were flooding the zone in those places where ideally they would have heated our orders and people wouldn't have been going to these goddamn churches in the middle of an epidemic like this. But, um, you know, uh, then you've got the resources on the ground so that you don't absolutely annihilate your entire healthcare system. Like we've been struggling with, uh, in all of these hot zones that we see. I mean, we just, the way healthcare is paid for in this country, we cannot sustain the kind of inpatient hospital capacity that you need when you've got an epidemic like this with, you know, with 50 million people sick, you just can't do that. So your, <clears throat> your overflow space has to come from the military and they're, if the military is great at anything, aside from blowing shit up, it's logistics, baby. Yeah. And they can get a whole lot of critical infrastructure moved to someplace distant very quickly and with great accuracy and mm. that's where you really leverage the military while this is all going on and you make these guys you know the the community health workers that uh you know that they that's a role that they should be serving in peacetime domestically so um one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is we wanted to talk about how our health delivery system so let's let's set the insurance and the paying for side for a moment we'll come back to that Okay. Um, but one of the things I think we wanted to explore was how our health delivery systems had had failed us. But, you know, in the time between when we first talked and today, I think what I've really realized is that um, our inability to deliver adequate health services to all the people that got sick was not a bug of the system, but it's actually a feature of the system. Like the, our system was never designed to deal with large scale public health crisis nope. like what we faced. Um, to me, the healthcare system is like the hotel for sick people. You know, hospitals need to fill beds. If they don't fill beds, they lose revenue. Beds cost money. Space costs money. Ventilators cost money. They have to be full. Um, so it's not really feasible to have a system that's designed to deal with a surge of 5,000, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 new patients needing critical care at a moment's notice. It's just not, and no system is designed that way. Can we think of, I mean, can you think of any system in the world 
whether it's a public health system, whether it's a hybrid system, whether it's a public-private system like we have here, where they would be prepared for the kind of disease that we faced in the last 90 days. Not at all. But also having said that, we knew exactly what needed to happen. I mean, Obama and Ron Klain left a whole playbook right. for these clowns on how to handle a pandemic. And the entire effort for this thing was doomed from the beginning, just from Trump's budget cuts of public health resources and, um, you know, the, the disbanding of the whole National Security Council's pandemic team. And we had, we had forward basically virus listening posts over in China, and he closed those all up and brought all that stuff back. I mean, you know, public health has always suffered because nobody wants to pay for something that's not right in front of them as a threat in that moment, right? Mm. And, you know, public health and pandemic planning are all about, um, you know, literally planning for that worst case scenario. And politicians are just terrible at that. Um, but that's my point about having, you know, missed opportunities of leveraging military resources for handling the overflow. I mean, that's, uh, that really is a central role, uh, I think, of our military in peacetime should be to be able to, you know, backstop our private-based healthcare system with so many uninsured people desperately needing help in the middle of a, an outbreak like this that, um, you know, they are literally the only uh, asset in this country that can provide those kinds of resources. So, At a drop of a hat. Yeah. I mean, but to your point that it's a feature of the system, yeah, I mean, of course it is. Our, our health system is, is so grossly deficient because it fundamentally it's built on racist and classist principles. I mean... The fact that 75 million people still have their health insurance sourced to their employment is just an atrocity when you're in the middle of a pandemic like this with 50 million people unemployed. And therefore, their health insurance is at risk. That's not how any of this works or should work. Yeah. So we are extraordinarily vulnerable to events like this because one, our health insurance is tied to employment. Two, we chronically uh, underfund and underfinance uh, public health and community health resources. Three, we're racist as fuck and all of our resource allocation and budgets for um, uh, anything from the uh, certificate of need process for hospitals and nursing homes and how we figure out where we put healthcare assets and facilities was completely racist by design. I mean, minority communities have been redlined in healthcare as bad as they have been in real estate um, or in law enforcement. And it's in moments like this, when you see African-American and Latinx people dying at four times their rate that you see in the population that it takes a pandemic to lay the racist nature and the classist nature of our healthcare system bare. And for all to see that, you know, inequality is really not just the feature, it is the, the, the tentpole 
of American healthcare. And that's why we do what we do at, at Nightingale in, in our fund. Hey, John, so what what has cracked open then in in kind of the American photograph of ourselves? Yeah. You, you know, what you know, protests in the street, global pandemic, um, four times the rate for people of color, um, exposing a lack of adequate hospital care for tens of millions of people. You know, has something cracked open here that is is so multi-pronged that it's biting us from a whole host of directions? I mean, I think as we're seeing in the polls right now, I mean, I think most people recognize that um, right now we're in an administration that's just completely corrupt, inadequate, racist, and uh, and ineffective. Um, and it's um, and then you see the just the streams of video now. I mean, I think the greatest thing that ever happened to civil rights and equality in this country is the fucking cell phone, man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, everybody's a videographer now. And then it, when it's out there in the evening news and it's out on social media for all to see, you know, you really can't feign ignorance to this stuff any longer. And when you see black people in this country literally getting murdered in the street by people with badges. Um, I think there has really been an awakening in this last several months mm. because they you're combining these two things that one that we can go from an incredibly competent, effective and um, and 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 very progressive government to a complete failure of a racist apartheid state in three years that uh, literally has made it its mission to hollow out the government and what it's supposed to do in situations like this, right? And just a span of three years. Then you've got this inarguable video everywhere on all of this stuff. And then third, I would say, man, Joe, and I know we all see this, the three of us see this. These kids of ours are woke as fuck, man. These kids are paying attention. I mean, in ways that, I certainly never did. And I like to think of myself as a, as a guy that paid attention and was kind of, you know, uh, progressive from, from even my time where I lived. But these kids are really awake. It's like racism has, and, and being progressive in race relations has taken a same position in the zeitgeist, especially with this generation as saving the environment as and that um that people deserve a living wage and it's like all of the things that we as progressives 30 years ago were really only talking about these kids are are, and just thinking about or dreaming about these kids are talking about how to do it and then when you see new progressive voices coming into the government who get it and are going to be our next generation of incredible, competent policymakers and apparatchiks who are going to get this stuff done. 
I, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that gives me a little hope in the middle of this crystal knocked like darkness that we're finding ourselves in right now. I mean, I keep waiting for burning books and shattered glass. And I think it could happen right after this election. But man, I think once we run these assholes out of town and we put in uh, an administration and a Congress that's going to get this stuff right. I mean, listen, man, people look at that coalition that's out in the street now, Joe. Mm. You know, we never saw this diverse a coalition out there screaming for these things as we are right now. I mean, this is history in the making, baby. All right. So, uh, Erich, jump in on this. All right. So uh, this is Bernie's moment, right? Bernie's not around. (laughs) So uh, not Bernie's moment, dude. Tell me why not. Listen, man, Bernie Sanders was on our committee when I was working for Chairman Conyers in the Congress. Bernie, I'm just going to say it, is an asshole. And he's almost as big a narcissist as this douchebag in the White House at the moment. See, Joe, I didn't say it that time. Listen, (laughs) I had to deal with Bernie in all these committee hearings. And, you know, uh, his office was near ours. And we had to work together on a bunch of stuff. Bernie's an asshole, dude. I mean, he votes right. But Bernie himself is an asshole. And his, his moment has passed. And um, and it, he's just not going to be there. Now, having said that, would he make a great labor secretary? Hell yeah. In a Biden administration, let's give Bernie something meaningful to do that reflects his values. And he can have his own little fiefdom over there like he's always wanted. But I've seen that guy, know that guy, and he's a dick, man. And all these Bernie bros that are threatening to not get on whatever it takes to get this fascist out of office, they can go fuck themselves too. Yeah. Preach brother. <laughs> I can't, I can't put it any better than that job. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. Come on, man. This is, this is a really important moment and I never thought I'd say it, but honestly what the country needs right now is a fucking grandpa. Yeah. Knows yeah. How to get shit done. Is that what you thought coming into this? No. Coming into this cycle? All. Like where, where were you? I don't know. Six months ago, nine months ago. My heart was with Kamala and Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. But I also knew none of them were going to be the nominee. Yeah. And in fact, I think they can serve a much greater role in this administration. Like, I think if Biden doesn't make Elizabeth Warren the next Treasury Secretary, that's a big missed opportunity. Yeah. The only thing I think that's better for her, to be honest, which would never happen the way seniority works. VP. Oh, absolutely. But I think even better than that, which I don't think would ever happen, is majority leader in the Senate. If we take back the Senate, it's just not going to happen. But I well, think it's time for Chuck well, to step to, to step aside. Marriage, and we're still 120 days out and you got a lot of battleground seats that are pulling away rapidly. I, mean, I think the Senate's in reach. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the Senate's in reach. But would Chuck understand that it's time for him to move aside and let someone uh, else in we'll see. because she as majority leader that is a a power broker position for her no me, even even more so than treasury secretary and certainly much more than vp i'm just going to argue with that with you on that because treasury is what that woman knows and what her gift is mm. 
and her ability to correct what's been done under this administration is needed almost as badly as we need Kamala Harris as the next attorney general. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think their roles in those two positions in particular are critically what this country needs right now. And I'd, I'd really love to see him in that role rather than in a VP uh, ticket, because I, you know, that's a very important appointment. But the, listen, we um, we desperately need to rebuild the Treasury Department, the Department of Justice, above all, uh, after the damage that's been done. Hey, so here's I want to rewind the tape, John, to what you said when you when you were appointed to that short lived job, that imaginary short lived job. Oh. Yeah. Can't let it go. Can you, Joe? <laughs> Can't let it go. Can't let it go. Yeah, because yeah, so, I'm planning his, his going away party when he's, you know, 72 hours into the job and he's no longer in it. So you said something about you would be more forceful you'd be more blunt than fauci is being and you know when you said that i thought of something that erich has spoken to me about a lot over the past several months which is the Mueller report and i was reading an article about how bob Mueller was kind of playing by rules of the road yeah uh, of this that and the other thing and we don't want to overreach and you know we're going to talk to the attorney general about the executive summary and when it should come out, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves and ring a ding ding and yabba dabba do. Are guys like Fauci and Mueller playing by a different set of rules than the bully boys in the White House who are kind of like, of you know, yeah. So tell me, tell me what that means to you. Well, listen, Fauci is a career civil servant. It's his job to be diplomatic. I mean, you don't get to be the career and longest serving head of his agency in NIH, you know, by being a firebrand. Mm. Um, and I think it's actually just knowing Dr. Fauci that uh, that's his personality. I mean, he, what you see with him is exactly what you get, mm. you know, and he, he speaks softly, but folksily, right? Like in, in ways that people can understand. But my point was just that, I think when you're facing an urgent public health crisis like this has been, and all you're getting is conflicting messages from everybody around you, that's when you got to bludgeon people. Because most folks need to hear these kinds of messages five or six times before they actually, uh, you know, really understand it and would be willing to do something about it. Isn't that normally how the CDC has functioned? They don't they're not wishy-washy about what needs to be done. It's you must do this or you need to do that. This is a, their, their attitude, I guess I would say, throughout this has been a lot different than I think what we've seen from them. Well, yeah, the because they've had, they've had the orange crush's foot on their neck yeah. since this thing broke. It's harder to play the diplomatic game when somebody's standing on your throat. You know, to be honest with you, I've been amazed that Fauci's gotten, been able to get away with the messaging that he's been able to under these clowns. Um, the person I think who should never be forgiven is Dr. Burks. Mm. He's sold her soul to these people. And, um, you know, Redfield at, at CDC is just another stooge that just got put in there 
right when we needed a real operator. And um, dude, this, you know, it's like CDC said this week, you know, it's out of control. This isn't a pandemic anymore. It's endemic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's really sort of part and parcel of what Democrats have never really internalized yet is that these guys are, these guys play dirty. Yeah. And they get that you got to win the news cycle. And, we, you know, we just want to be out there with our inclusive big tent messaging and all that stuff. And sometimes you just got to hit people right between the fucking eyes and just don't parse words and just be direct. And then people, I think, well, if they don't like you, we'll still respect you for your honesty because you kept it real. Right. A couple of months ago, Chris Rock, a comedian, was quoted as saying, I think it was in Rolling Stone. He said, you know, Trump and his acolytes are bullies. And yep. people don't know how to deal with bullies. They either try to be nicer and kinder and gentler. You know, they go low, we go high, yeah. yabba dabba do. And all that results in is getting crushed. Yeah. No, we, we, don't like to, we don't like to rumble. We don't like to push back on, on bullies and fascists. And I think our time is about to happen. I honestly feel like the, the 90 days between election day and inauguration day are going to be the scariest days in the history of this country. And I tell you, man, I, I hate to say it, but I, if we ever want to see a change in some of our most, our ugliest laws, then we ought to be encouraging black and brown people to go arm themselves as fast as possible because man, only that will get these guys here to start seeing things a little differently. I mean, did you notice the tenor of some of those counter protests when black people showed up with assault weapons. Yeah. I mean, we just don't play the game that they do. And, you know, it's got, I, I kind of just remember the untouchables, right? And Sean yeah. Connery's great little monologue of, you know. Yeah, they bring, bring a bat, a you bring fight. a gun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. We're busy about being polite and inclusive and, you know, we don't want to offend any of the many people in this rainbow coalition of ours, but Hey, sometimes you just got to say, fuck you, wear a mask. (laughs) It's that simple. You don't want to kill everybody around you. Wear a fucking mask, you idiot. And then give them. I want to kind of circle back to an earlier discussion because we, we kind of touched on, we touched on insurance just for a minute. And the, the big issue I think in the, in the U S is that insurance is employer based. We kind of yeah. started to talk about it. I'd like to dig into yeah. that a little bit more sure. because that, that piece of it, I, I don't see that anywhere in the debate. We've talked about private insurance. We've talked about single payer. We've talked about Medicare for all, but nobody talks about the employer aspect of it being kind of the driver of a lot of these problems. Um, well, because it's 75 million people, Eric, and the second, like Hillary tried, the second you tell them they can't have it anymore, that's when you lose a lot of support. I mean, that's yeah. a quarter of Americans with employer-based insurance, and they don't want you to fuck with it. Yeah. So it seems the most you know, pragmatic path to get into something that would get us close to universal coverage is either a significant expansion of Medicaid, and we tried that with Obamacare, but you just can't leave it up to the states to decide whether or not they're going to do it because these red state governors are going to fall on their swords to throw a middle finger at a black president offering it to them. Right. 
So I think ultimately you got to get to a combination of a mandatory Medicaid expansion and uh, making it easier for people to buy into Medicare. And, you know, listen, everybody would love to see Medicare for all. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks who think like we do would love to see single payer like a Canadian system. And it's just never going to happen in this country. And I think if we want to be really progressive and also pragmatic about what we can get done, then instead of talking about Medicare for all, which is never going to fucking happen, and frankly would be a disaster if it did, because it would set us back 50 years in terms of payment policy for healthcare in this country. Uh, to go back to fee-for-service, Medicare is what got us into this mess to begin with, in addition to employer-sponsored care. The other was a fee-for-service payment system that rewarded volume over value or outcomes, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, the only thing that could get the votes to pass and become law someday, and people are gonna think I'm crazy for saying this, but it's Medicare Advantage for all. It's the private sector option in Medicare that's run by private insurers it is, in a, it is, in effect, a single-payer program, but it's privately administered in the unique American model, as fucked up as it is, that we have that's administered by private insurers. So that could actually be a uniquely American solution to get us to universal coverage, is you cover all the lower-income folks through an expansion, a mandatory expansion of Medicaid, and then everybody else can buy into a Medicare advantage for all who want it. Um, and then that's how you get really close to universal coverage. We've got this system in Medicare Advantage, the program I used to run, um, that enables us a system of care for some very vulnerable people. And it allows us to track and trace how we're doing on, on a wide variety of performance measures 94% of these people are really happy with this option and feel they're getting great value from it. That's a model that can work. It needs some tinkering to be able to handle scale. It needs, it's got a real problem with racial disparities as we've seen for five consecutive years in the program now. But um, that is a program that with some twists of the wrench can be bent to your will to serve a much greater number of uninsured people and to do a far better job of taking care of the underserved populations that are already in it. Do you get to universal coverage with a combination of those two things? Pretty damn close, yeah. yeah. Yep. So who, who out there is saying this, John? Besides well, the there were a couple of folks that were kind of the voices of reason on this thing during the debate. Um, Buttigieg was basically a, a Medicare advantage for all who want it. Uh, Cory Booker was kind of in the same place. Uh, Klobuchar, too. You know, so there, there were some some pragmatic progressive voices during the campaign on how to approach this. You know, I think uh, I, I got it. It's interesting you say that because I did not get that message from from Pete Buttigieg. His healthcare message really landed flat with me because it 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 felt like a half loaf. You know, it felt like I'm going to appease everybody by not saying you're going to have to give up something you like. And I'm going to open this up to some other people. I, I never got this piece of it that that you're bringing to to the discussion. 
it's what actually could get done. Mm. I mean, he wasn't so much saying it was <clears throat> it was piecemeal or half a loaf. I think he was really looking at it from the standpoint of more, what could I actually get done? How can we go as far to the left as possible on this issue and still win? Yeah. So that's Medicare Advantage for all. And progressives are going to have to take some bitter medicine here because it's a publicly a privately administered program and the, and the plans make a ton of money off of it. But I mean, it's not they're also so addicted to this program at this point, Joe and Erich, yeah. that you could crank down these payment rates substantially. And we did it before and they hung in there just fine. They made money at uh, 5% less payment rates than we're currently given to them now. And everybody was making money and they were all happy. And that was 95% of what we pay for in a fee-for-service environment that guarantees it saves money. Um, you know, in effect, we can force insurance companies in Medicare and Medicaid to become, in effect, the public utilities they are. Uh, and if we're gonna give them, uh, you know, millions of new enrollees, like, like Trump said to the president of Ukraine, first, I need you to do me a little favor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're going to we're, we're going to regulate the hell out of this program to accomplish the public good that we needed to. You're still going to make plenty of money. But here's what we need to get done. So what's the what's the progressive argument against that? Ooh, uh, capitalism, icky yeah. private stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why I think Bernie never really had a chance. Oh. Yeah. He never really had a chance, and it was a stupid idea to begin with. Look, I, I worked on the single-payer bill yeah. that he and Conyers and the Congressional Black Caucus uh, put up that was the first single-payer bill uh, with Jim McDermott from Washington State back in 1990. I worked on that bill, and it was never going to fucking happen. And I loved working on it and the research and going to Canada and Britain and Germany and Poland to see the sick funds and all the research that went into this, you know, but it was never going to happen because there's too much of a private sector already involved in this industry. We are never going to drop a neutron bomb on a three and a half trillion dollar industry. We've never done it before. We're not about to start with the health insurance industry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you guys want to get somewhere on this, you can't let perfect of, you know, Pure single payer healthcare be the enemy of the good, which is a Medicare advantage for all who want it and a mandatory Medicaid expansion. That we could actually get done in a Democratic administration and uh, get in the Senate back. We could get that done. You're never going to get pure single payer done. So, so let, is me, it, let me come at it from this angle. Do, at the end of the day, what do we really care about? Do we care about everybody has universal access to health care or do we care about it being done in a way that feels somehow righteous to us? Right. I mean, what's I mean, the goal here is or at least it should be everybody has access to health care somehow, some way. Even enough, Eric. Everybody needs to have health insurance. Yeah. Access to health care isn't enough. I mean, we already see that and how short we've fallen and providing access to healthcare, you know, against the backdrop of this glaring light of a pandemic. I mean, this is, um, you get, they gotta have health insurance. Look, I also work- If we have a way to get to that, what different, I, I guess I, I struggle with, I mean, I don't really care what form it takes. And I don't understand why anybody would care. If we can get everybody covered, 
everybody can be insured, even if it involves private industry making a buck. What's but the goal? Different you know? than access to healthcare. Republicans okay. talk okay. about access to healthcare, and you know what their favorite program is? My old program, the Community Health Center program. That's a federal program where they spend billions each year on federally funded primary care clinics for underserved people. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's the Republicans' biggest fig leaf that they've ever had in healthcare since 1965, because it gets to them to be able to stand in front of these beautiful clinics with all these black and brown people going in and out of it and say, see, as long as they just have access to primary care, who needs health insurance? They don't need that. We've got 3,000 community health centers across the country. They don't need Medicaid. They don't need Medicare earlier, you know, because they've got access to this. Oh, so so I got to change my language about country it. is insurance yeah. because look, I mean, as long as doctors and hospitals are not on the payroll of a state or a county like they are in Canada, they are in this to make money. And that means they have to charge somebody for their services. They're not on salary. They got to bill somebody for it. That's why we need insurance. Okay. And insurance is by its nature a pooling effect that works even better the more people who are in it. That's why you've seen so much stability in the Obamacare markets since we got through the initial shock of creating a whole new insurance program from a green field. So it can be done. And um, I think a lot of the folks who you know, were really ardent single-payer supporters really just need to you know, take a breath, chill out, and grow the fuck up Let's go as far left as we can and still win on this. And that's not ever going to be single payer, just pure single payer. Never. We need private industry in this country because it's way too deeply entrenched to blow it all up. Are, are there other examples of, of countries that don't have a single payer or a government run healthcare system that is, you know, quasi government sponsored, quasi private? Yeah. That I mean, would be similar. Germany. Germany's, uh, Australia's, New Zealand's, Poland's is kind of like a hybrid model like ours, where they, you know, they have these sick funds that sort of operate like Medicaid does for us. Um, but no, I mean, you know, we're, we're just so stubbornly idiotic about coverage in this country, but primarily because it sprung out of World War II that people got their health insurance coverage through their employer. That was our fatal mistake hmm. early in our history when it became evident that this, the, that insurance mattered. And unfortunately, during the war effort, it became how you attracted labor in a very tight labor market. And, and there we, was, never, we never cut that loose and federalized it or did anything else with it. There, there, there is something insidious in all of it, isn't it? Uh, you know, uh, Congratulations, you've gotten a job, so you're sort of special, you're more special than people unemployed in the kind of, you know, <clears throat> Protestant work ethic sensibility, you've done what you need to do, so now there are certain gifts bestowed upon you, and one of those things is medical coverage, and if you haven't gotten a job, you're kind of in some kind of pe penalty box, yeah. you know, you, you, you haven't done what you needed to do to access that stuff that's important to you and your family. Yep. And by God, we're not going to help you. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, Medicaid has always had the position that it's had, the stigma that it's had 
in this country. So it's welfare. Yeah. Yep. You know. But, you know, what you describe, John, doesn't get applause in a debate, does it? You know, when you're standing well, up on the stage, you know, you're, and you say, listen, folks, you're going to have to you're going to have to sit back. Give me three or four minutes to explain this, tell you why it'll actually work, tell you why the fanciful nature of some other thoughts you have, although we'll get an applause line, will never get past the place that it needs to get past to become something, right. etc. Well, I probably would have articulated it rather differently in a debate, Joe. Oh, how would you? How would you? <laughs> oh. You know, that... Um, the way our democracy works and the way our laws are made requires compromise and it requires some pragmatism. And that if we look at what the goal is, and the right goal is to cover as many Americans as we can in one swift stroke, um, that the most pragmatic way to get there, that the, the thing we could actually get done in 2021 would be expand Medicaid and make sure that it can't be rejected by opposing state governors on a political whim. That mm. is a federal program. We're going to give you a hundred percent match like Obamacare did, but you're going to take it. Um, two, that we're going to make Medicare's private option available to everybody else who needs it and who wants to buy into it. And, um, you know, you're going to get lots of support from the federal government in the form of uh, subsidies to be able to buy the plan that works for you. And this is Medicare. It's a single payer program, but it's privately administered. And these are networks and billing systems that have already set up, been set up nationwide for years. And they can be bent to our will to serve a public good far better than it's than it has to date. Look, already these programs are wildly popular among the po people who have them, and they, they are the lifeblood of the doctors and hospitals that, that take care of our communities. So let's build on what's already working. Let's make it better. Let's regulate the hell out of it to accomplish the public good that we need it to. But that's the path that we could get to, to universal coverage, and we could make that happen next year. John, cue the applause, baby. Man, it's been a while since I've... I had to give a speech like that, Joe. Come on, man. It, that was good. That was good. Fifteen-year-old. Yeah. How is that? How how is that different? How is that different from from what um, from the intent of Obamacare? It sounds like to me. It sounds like Obamacare with everybody already in place. No need to stand up and exchange. No need for states to build infrastructures which have worked very very poorly. No yep. need for, you know, uh, 50 different insurance companies making 50 different policies in 50 different states. Yep. But the basic structure you're describing sounds to me like Obamacare without that extra layer of bureaucracy. Listen, Obamacare had to be structured that way because that was the pragmatic solution that could get the fucking votes at the end of the day. I mean, do you remember what a barn burner, what a nail biter? that whole vote was for those three weeks in the Congress. That's what it took to get to yes and to a law. Okay. So I, I don't besmirch them anything about what they did because they, they got it passed. They got it done. Okay. At the end of the day, that's what we really have to commit ourselves to. It's like, it's great to reach and it's great to dream big 
and you know to have our our progressive little shangri-la and lucy's in the sky with diamonds and shit but at the end of the day you got to get the votes and you got to get a bill to a president's desk to be signed and that's what literally we could get done next year if we see this landslide election it's looking to be don't get comfortable people but it's looking to be a landslide and man if we get the senate back too man we got a lot of work to do Mm. but we could get that done next year so i like getting shit done i like dreaming big but i like getting shit done more and i think that's kind of where we should be thinking uh, if this goes the way we, that we all hope and are working for it to happen, don't hey, get John. You, you're one. You're one of the good guys. Uh, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> for my part, you know, listen, we're out there in the protests. You know, I've been uh, writing some money to some of the groups that are paying for the legal fees of the protesters that were wrongfully ar- uh, uh, arrested. But I got to tell you guys, the biggest checks that I'm writing right now are for get out the vote and for uh, mail-in ballots to uh, be approved at the state level and uh, just to ensure that every black and brown and disadvantaged person in this country that wants to vote man if i got to get an uber ride for you to the polls we'll we'll do that um but uh that's really where you know my heart my effort my money's going right now We got to really be treating this like Biden's 10 points behind. And we're looking at uh, we're looking at the decline and fall of America. Uh, I know you I know you remember July of 1992 as well as I do in a three person race. And the eventual winner was in third place. Yeah. Right around now. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It is not a time to be complacent and it's not a time to you know, start measuring the bunting for the inaugural parade. Oh, no, absolutely not. No, right now it's just all about getting people to the polls and voting. This has to be a landslide or otherwise this, his, his inevitable screams of a rigged election and then summoning whichever of his heavily armed supporters will come to Washington to uh, defend his presidency. Uh, man, we got to make sure this is a landslide for, for the sake of the country. I mean, really. That, those 90 days scare the hell out of me, guys. So let's go into Independence Day weekend and hope this time next year, baby, everything's a whole lot better. Right on. Love being here, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Great conversation. Long overdue.